You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode and our guest, if you are interested in getting into sports and coaching, you want to hang around for this guest, just a very special person that we're excited to talk to. But before we get to him, uh, our normal reminder is about following us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show. Certainly, you can always contact us there. We do our best to get back to everybody through social media, so please feel free to reach out to us and tell us what you love about the show or just say thanks for whatever uh, that you like about the Hazard Ground. Also, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Same thing from your smartphone, by the way. It'll redirect you through the app, so all your credit card information is saved. Very convenient, very easy, and, and a way for you to help and support veterans and veterans organizations all across America just in the comfort of ordering things on Amazon that you actually don't need in your house. Talk to my wife. Trust me. I was thinking today about the the, the number of packages that get to the house each week through the Amazon guy. Yeah. Um, that's the only person I ever actually have to worry about my wife leaving me for is the Amazon delivery guy because he's at my house more than I am. I digress. I'll bring it back to the more important subject matter here. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews. Uh, This helps grow the show, helps us get to the top 100 Apple podcasts. Doesn't have to be a long review. Wherever you get your Apple podcasts, please give us five stars. Tell us what you like about the show. Could just be one sentence, one word. Great exclamation point. Wonderful. That'll do it for us. But please continue to leave us um, Apple reviews. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Like and subscribe uh, to all the episodes because you can watch our show there as well. I know a lot of people listen to the audio version, but if you want to watch it and see the guests and I interact, you can do so on our YouTube channel. You can also do so on the Kill Cliff TV app. So if you download the Kill Cliff TV app, there's so much great you know, military-related content over there at Kill Cliff, uh, but also you can get all the Hazard Ground episodes there uh, through an app right on your phone. And of course, Kill Cliff, good friends of the show and partners with us here, killcliff.com to get all of your clean energy drinks. As I always hold up my Killer Cliff Sickle, the CBD version of it, they make great CBD products if that's what you're into. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Kill Cliff. I use the pre-workout, the Ignite, and the post-workout, the Recover. They're absolutely fantastic, all-natural stuff, just a great product. And again, Kill Cliff um, benefits, a lot of, a lot of their benefits Go to all their benefits. Go to the Navy SEAL Foundation because it was founded by a a former Navy SEAL. So please go to KillCliff.com. All right, on to this week's episode uh, with a former West Point graduate who went on to serve 24 years in the U.S. Army. He's now a retired colonel. He spent 54 months deployed between Iraq and Afghanistan throughout his career. Uh, He's commanded at every level, including battery troop squadron, battalion, deputy brigade, and seven years in special mission units. He's a graduate of the Naval War College and the National War College. After his career in the military, he went on to work at Towson University's athletic department and spent the last three years as the deputy athletic director for external operations. He was also a member of the Chesapeake Bayhawks lacrosse team in, in major league lacrosse before it uh it meshed with the 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 pll which is the uh 
Oh, God, why am I forgetting what PLL stands for? It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, professional Lacrosse League, right? I think. Anyway, but uh, Chesapeake Bayhawks, Major League Lacrosse. He was a director of external relationships before he joined this amazing organization called Soldiers to Sidelines, where he is now the director of partnerships. He is Will Huff joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Will, welcome, and thank you for being here. Mark, it's a great pleasure, and thank you. That's a humbling introduction, and look forward to sharing some of my experiences with the audience. Yeah, uh, and it's crazy. We were talking, you and I have so many like connections. Uh, you went to high school in Long Island. I'm from Long Island. You have a daughter who attends Loyola, who's in the ROTC program there. That's where <laughs> I was commissioned. I called lacrosse games for years. I'm well into lacrosse. I know Towson very well. I know Loyola, obviously, as I went there. And so uh, it's kind of crazy how... Uh, without ever knowing you personally, like we've been passing like two ships in the night here for, for the better part of the last five or six years. Yeah, it's great. That's uh, I would call it a little serendipity. serendipity yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. So, uh, and again, an amazing career. Um, very, very long and distinguished. And you were introduced to me through a friend that I work with at Merging Vets and Players. Uh, you actually served with her husband. Uh, so we're also connected through that. And, you know, uh, your career started at West Point. Did you always know that that's where you wanted to go? Well, I think that's a great place to start, Mark. And and like many, uh, I think, who continue on as college athletics, you know, youth athletics and scholastic athletics greatly influenced my own development. And still to this day, I always remember those very positive coaches that I had. You know, growing up, I was a football player, wrestler, played lacrosse and those, you know, three sports I continued on through high school and I was fortunate enough to be recruited um, mostly for football. And ultimately the opportunity for me to play at the highest level was at West Point. I didn't have any preconceived ideas of service. Uh, You know, I'm from that generation graduating high school in 1985 where, you know, both of my grandfathers were World War II veterans and that positively shaped me. Uh, But initially I certainly went to West Point because of the uh, opportunity with athletics so i mean if if hypothetically speaking um rutgers had come calling you know i'm staying in the northeast where you went to high school uh yukon or you know even west virginia whatever it is maryland said will we want you to play football for us do you think you would have ended up there instead yeah i mean mark i think that's a really good question we, we did not even pre-plan this but rutgers was my school of choice oh, really? so that's i kind of saw <laughs> Wanted to go play on the raritan didn't you yeah. So, and in fact, the gentleman who recruited me there, Warren Kogel, um, it was very uncomfortable when he ultimately told me that they were not going to offer me. And he said, Hey, we'd love to have you come walk down, but we are, you know, we're just not going to offer you. And again, this is coming out of high school in 1985. The small world story of it is Warren Kogel was the Rutgers offensive line coach. And I was a defensive lineman. And my, uh, I started three years against Rutgers, and our last two years we uh, beat them. And each time I, I did have a, uh, <clears throat> a certain level of satisfaction, shaking hands with Coach Kogel after the game. And uh, and I, I was very fortunate. I mean, it, not to sound disparagingly against Rutgers University, it's a you know tremendous institution, but I'm very grateful that uh, Rutgers did not offer me and that I went to West Point and I was able to beat them twice. But much more importantly the opportunity to serve in the U.S. Army. So when you get to West Point, I mean, football is the primary thing. Are you in culture shock because now you're learning about this whole other part of of life that you have to, you know, (laughs) abide to? Yes, culture shock. And then, you know, what 
and every cadet has their own experience. From my experience, there were several folks. You know, my last two years, I had an outstanding tactical officer, <clears throat> which helped, you know, mold me, shape me. I had a lot of peers. Some of our prior service cadets, they had a disproportional effect because they had actually been in the Army. And then unique to West Point at that time, we had three coaches and two coaches that, although they didn't coach my, my position, they were defensive coaches, and they were both veterans. And one had actually been a Marine Corps rifle company commander in Vietnam. And at the time, he wouldn't overstate it, but he'd bring up these periodic stories of, you know, what service meant to him and how we were learning attributes that would pay off another, you know, as MacArthur said, other fields and other days that will bear the fruits of victory. So while I didn't understand what was going on at the time, I was definitely being influenced by a combination of great professors that influenced me, tactical officers, as well as my coaches. Now, I know all you, uh, and I say this lovingly, all you ring knockers, uh, you guys go back to West Point often. Obviously, you go back to the games and everything else. I'm curious because you did mention something that I, I, it just kind of dawned on me as we were talking. You know, I wonder how much football coaches at West Point are saying, you need this to win a football game, but you also need this to win in combat kind of deal. Um, and I'm sure you guys, when you talk to players, you say that same thing. Uh, because it's a lot more real. But when you got there in the 80s, there was no combat. So there was nothing real life to relay it to. Was was there a lot of that for you? And how much of that do you, you guys now go back when you talk to football players at West Point now? Tell them, look, you know, we're in a different world right now. You, you got to win a football game here, but this is going to help you, you know, keep your troops alive. Yeah, Mark, I mean, that's another great question. I'll just share from my perspective you know, back in, as, as you mentioned, when I was there from 86 and I did spend five years, which is an extended program, not by choice. Um, clearly, you would recognize those professors, those tactical officers, those staff members that wore the right combat patch that right. definitely stood out. And you listen to them, not to be overly biased, but there was a certain credibility that when they would share a lesson with you, at least for myself and many of my friends, we would have a little bit more attention um, you know, to those individuals. In fact, one of the tactical officers that he was, had no direct relationship to me, but he had two, uh, we had a muster sting on his jump wings and a ranger scroll on his right arm. So of course everybody uh, knew who he was and listened to him. And the small world of it is he ended up being my battalion commander a couple of years later in third ranger battalion. So in a peacetime West point, there were still enough of, of those lessons learned and then, you know, not to sound disparaging of those individuals who hadn't yet served in combat, because clearly they were very competent officers. Uh, but war was not as prevalent. However, my senior year was during Just Cause. And that was something that le at least we followed. And that was in the fall of 89. Then my fifth year was Desert Storm. And that's when some of the folks I had, you know, uh, I had been cadets with, I had played Army football with, were actually serving in combat. So the realization that war was inevitable or is the you know, kind of the constant state of the world uh, wasn't lost on us, but it wasn't necessarily at the forefront like it's been since 2001. Right. Was there a seminal moment for you or like sort of a paradigm shift in your mentality where you transitioned from football player to future leader officer type individual yeah. <laughs> like did, like did that happen for you or you just like all right now i'm done with football i guess i'll just you know do the military thing i said i was going to do for the next four years 
you know, Mark, I'm only laughing because both, uh, you know, some of these questions, they are really not pre preplanned. No, but there, there was a <laughs> seminal moment for me. And, and, and it was a gentleman named, uh, he was a director of military training and his name was Tex Turner, Colonel Tex Turner. And he came in my sophomore year and we weren't doing very well in football. In fact, I think our record was like two wins, four losses. We were struggling <clears throat> and Tex Turner came in and he gave a, an incredible short presentation to the team. And he said, being an army football player is like being an army ranger. It's a way of life and a state of mind. And he shared how he never played a down of army football. He played two years of scout team and then got cut. But it wasn't about playing time that, that that shaped him as a leader. It was about that experience as a team member, knowing that your role is far greater than yourself and how he learned those lessons. And then he was able to apply them during his two tours in Vietnam. And that that very short presentation really had an impound of, uh, or a significant effect on me and shaped me for years. You know, I used to always had this internal voice that, you know, would repeat itself about, army football players like being an army ranger and you know certainly tex turner had another great story that he shared separate separate venue where he said one time he woke up from a from a nightmare and thought he was back in ranger school but he was only in vietnam i know that was that was an exaggeration but you know just his point was stress is very relative right uh so after you graduate by the way what was your record against navy just out of curiosity Man, that was a sore point. I didn't want that question. It was three and one okay. uh, football wise. Unfortunately, I lost my senior year. So yeah, well, I, as soon as you games. said, unfortunately, I knew the one was the senior one. <laughs> well, there was a stretch there where everybody who went to West Point lost all four years. Yes, so yes, thank God we're absolutely. back on top now. Jeff Monk and we love you, baby. Um, so uh, beyond, uh, you know, the football stuff, as you were going to West Point, did you know you ended up wanting to be what were you cavalry or were you armor? I, I was field artillery. Field officer. artillery? Okay. I knew it was one of those, but did you? Is that, yeah, is that- I mean, I, I, I didn't have, you know, again, candidly, I didn't have much of a choice by the time I, I graduated. So, you know, my choices were field artillery and air defense, both, you know, fine branches. But I, I was at the part of the class where you don't have a lot of options. <laughs> a lot of options due to uh, <laughs> being at the bottom of your class or not a lot of options because uh yeah i think that's a good way to say it okay. you know, that it was uh you know i was a public school long island kid so academics were, did not come easy well okay <laughs> i would have been i went to private school i'm, I'm, dead. I'm a, you know overachiever i guess or just wanted to make my parents spend extra money one or the other uh so anyway but yeah so you end up becoming field artillery uh you graduate you mentioned in 80 90 it was right 91 91 ultimately okay yep. Um, you had where right after? Yeah. So after the, so my, my first assignment was Berlin, Germany. It was originally eighth infantry division that was deactivated, you know, post desert storm post 91, 92 was a real drawdown period. And I was very fortunate to get to go to Berlin brigade, which was a very small unit. In fact, we were a one, we only had one battery, uh, in, in the unit. So our battery commander, and then plus a major, they were the senior artillery men. So as a Lieutenant, I was given a lot of responsibility and it, it really allowed me to grow. And I, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Um, was there anything in particular you liked about field artillery, hated about it? Uh, at the time I didn't, I didn't know any better. I, 
I, I definitely like the, um, the breadth of the experience. So the three jobs you have in your development is a fire support officer where you're out with the maneuver units, either infantry, armor, cavalry, aviation. And that really makes you, ensures you understand the maneuver aspect. Then you're a fire direction officer, which is very technical. And there are some aspects that I greatly appreciated and that I used later on in my career, certainly. And then the idea of a classic, you know, platoon leader. So the diversity of those three jobs as a, as, as a developmental process, as a field artillery lieutenant, I think are, um, is a great opportunity. And while at the time I was a little, you know, I, I wanted to be an infantry officer, I uh, ended up embracing greatly the opportunities as a field artillery officer. Yeah, you, you're speaking of not knowing any better. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, uh, I chose my basic branch because I didn't realize that after you go to your basic course, you go to another post. So I was in Baltimore, went to Loyola. I'm like, oh, you mean ordinance school is right up the road there? Like I, I stay in the Northeast Corner. I'll go be ordinance because I thought that's where I was staying. Nobody told me I had to go somewhere else afterwards. And they sent me to Fort Hood. So that's listen, right. there's always somebody stupider than you. Just uh, take solace in that. And I was probably that guy. Uh, anyway, but uh, so not to gloss over the early part of your career, but you know, you're, you're serving at relative peacetime. I mean, obviously Black Hawk Down had happened in 93, uh, you weren't part of that, right? I assume you had no connection to that. And so, you know, the, the rest of the next eight years are, are fairly quiet by all accounts. Agree. Agree. And you know, it's funny you mentioned that Mark, because I did ended up serving in third Ranger battalion and arriving about nine months after, uh, that unit had returned. And in fact, I was in B company, you know, which is the unit, the main effort unit when you watch the movie Black Hawk down, mm-hmm. um, so it was really unique in that my, my entire fire support team, in fact, out of the three platoon fire uh, forward observers, you know, they're at the E5 level. You know, I had uh, two bronze stars and a silver star or two bronze stars with valor and a silver star award winner. And uh, I, it was very humbling, but inspiring. And it really confirmed, you know, the roles that we have because while they had great experience the one activity we almost deployed to was um, jumping into Haiti in 1994. And clearly they still were looking, you know, for my role as their leader, they were looking for guidance uh, direction. And uh, it was, it was very humbling to have these eyes looking back at me, you know, all men that had been on the streets of Mogadishu that day back in uh, 1993. And now as we were preparing for battle, it really resonated with me that, you know, my, that clearly I had a role and I had to fulfill it. Were you curious about their experience? Did you talk to them one-on-one about it? Oh, very. They, they, they probably were tired of me asking (laughs) questions because I was, I was incredibly fascinated by their lessons learned. In fact, we would do training exercises based on some of their very specific lessons learned. And one thing that really stuck on me and this carried on throughout the rest of my career was pre-combat inspections. And I know that may sound like a very like simple, simple task, but one of their internal lessons was, you know, when they went out that day in October 3, 4, 1993, their assumption was short raid. And when they ended up being out there at night during a prolonged duration, they reflected back and thought they had underprepared in terms of, you know, batteries, water, ammunition. Um, Those are the three big things, batteries, (laughs) ammunition, food and water, and that really stuck with me later on. Yeah, anecdotally, um, I'll tell a quick story. Pre-combat checks, and this was uh, 
for me, it was eight days before I left Iraq in my first deployment. I was asked to do a a quick run uh, from my base at, at Baghdad Airport over to the Green Zone. And I had made this trip, God, easily, two to three dozen times already. I knew exactly the route. I could have drove it backwards with my eyes closed, never any. And it was a last-minute thing, and they asked me to do it, and I didn't want to do it. But um, I had to go get a reporter from the New York Times from the Green Zone who was coming in to look at the soft unit that we were training. And so long story short, uh, I just was irritated that I had to do it. I got my – and I was using my Iraqi soldiers that I had trained to do it. So I got them all together, left my interpreter, didn't take a map, didn't take a radio, didn't take anything, ran out the door, got there. And we on the way back, they closed off the gate that we normally use. So I had to take a different gate, got lost, drove around for 20 minutes, rolled over an IED, uh, and, and then finally made it back, uh, all because I didn't have a map, didn't have an interpreter, didn't have anything – um, there's, is a much longer, you know, some other details I'm leaving out, but you know, you talk about pre-combat checks. Uh, I skipped every single one of them and it almost cost me my life. And it's, it's stuff like that, that really, you know, um, is, is it's their lifesavers. We, we always say it's important and everybody says, yep, 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 yep. I got it. And then the one time you skip it, of course, it ends up getting you in trouble. What, what do they say? Mark Murphy's law, right? Yep. It's always in effect. Always, always. Um, okay. So where are you on nine 11? Yeah, so uh, I was fortunate after serving some time in 82nd Airborne. I was then serving in Special Operations Command. I was the uh, fire supporter at first SFOD Delta. Mm-hmm. And it was very unique timing. We had just come back from a training exercise, and, uh, and 9-11 occurs. In fact, where I was, we had, we had done something over the weekend, and I was actually at home getting ready for you know, what we might call in the military a uh, – uh, a, you know, Donza, a day off after extended training. Right. And uh, I, for some reason I had CNN on and I saw, this, you know, the first plane had gone in, there was this chatter on CNN and then the second plane goes in and I realized then something happened. My beeper went off back then. There was still beepers. Yeah. yeah good old days. <laughs> and uh, you know, went into work and for the first couple of days, nobody really knew what had happened, but we all knew that, you know, we would be part of the first. No, you, um, you were our first group when 9-11 happened. No, I mean, I I was at, and I, I can say it now, I, I was the fire support officer at, at, at Delta. Okay, all right, gotcha. Um, so, and, and, okay, go ahead, I'm sorry, finish. No, we we just knew that something was going to yes. happen, and almost immediately, you know, there were a lot of contingency plannings, you know, without getting into anything that violates OPSEC, because I haven't yet, I have not, <laughs> is – there were some plannings back a couple of years earlier about going in to get bin Laden in Pakistan. So there was a small contingent of folks that yep. were very well versed in the area, but they were few and far between, you know, most of us were very, at least myself, other than being a uh, student of history, you know, I hadn't read, you know, Les Corral's book, the bear went over the mountain, but that was about the depth of my understanding of Afghanistan at the time. But yeah. we knew we were going to do something in the next, you know, four to six weeks. We're very busy in preparing those first operations into Afghanistan. I probably skipped and I wanted to ask this. So you, you had these eight years, nine years of your career where nothing really went on. I mean, what motivated you to stay in? I, for a guy who only wanted to play football, yeah. was there ever a thought like, <laughs> hey, man, this isn't what I bargained for? You yeah, know, well, like I may as well, well just get out and go do something else. That's a great question. I mean, I, I was fascinated because I was very fortunate. You know, I went from Berlin Brigade to 3rd Ranger Battalion to the 82nd airborne and I was just so inspired, you know, serving with soldiers, 
then rangers and then paratroopers and i don't mean to say just like rangers or just paratroopers because those soldiers were equally motivated they just had different levels of resources and maybe had different goals Um, but it was just you know it was those that i served with and that and that unified uh, mission that really kept me going and and while we didn't have combat and uh, for many may may not agree but one of the unique things I was, it just ended up timing in my career, you know, between like 1992 and uh, 2000, I think I did six different CTC rotations, you know, CMTC in Germany wow. twice, JRTC four times, uh, NTC, Jungle Operations Training Center. And while that was certainly not, not combat, every one of those, I would learn so much about myself, about the unit about understanding terrain, understanding the enemy, understanding the war fighting functions and not to sound too, too corny, but I found it very challenging. And yeah, I no, I mean, I can totally process. relate. I mean, I remember being on active duty being like, this sucks, you know, prior to nine 11, it was just like, I'm like, I go to work every day. It's essentially a nine to five, you know, all we do is just do army stuff all day long. Then we go home and that's it. Like there was nothing, you know, and I remember being on active duty at Fort Hood, just like miserable. Um, I'm a New York kid and they stick me in the middle of Texas. I stick out like a sore thumb. Um, and and I remember trying to get on a, 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 I was with an engineer unit on active duty at the time, trying to get on like a, a at the time I thought it's considered a deployment to Honduras because they were going there to build stuff. I'm like, you know, the brochure told me be all I could be, go travel the world, go see all these things. And I'm stuck in Killeen, Texas, and I want to blow my brains out. Like, I mean, this is, you know, miserable. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, Mark, had I not had these constant objectives during right. what I'll call the peacetime process, because, you know, the, those CTCs were very challenging. Nothing sure. compared to warfare. Don't get me wrong. But they were, they gave us that, that focus, you know, it was sort of like the big game, the big campaign yep. athletic season. So I'm, I was fortunate that I was always part of these kind of higher tempo processes. And um, yeah, that, that, that's what kept me in is I guess to answer your, your initial question, you know, how'd you end up staying 10 years when we were army at, at peacetime with all those great challenges. I found it challenging, you know, being in those units that got to go to the training centers because those were, I mean, as hard as they were in a way, again, not to compare to combat, I learned so much individually, collectively about peers, about soldiers, about seniors. And I always had that little notebook making little notes. And there was many lessons that I saw then that really came out to play over the next decade when I was you know, deployed between Iraq and right. Afghanistan. I mean, I, I, if I've said it a hundred times on this, this show, I, I've said it a hundred times, you know, the army has a funny way of putting you where you're supposed to be uh, and, and figuring out what's best for you uh, and, and, if you stay around long enough, you end up with more fortunate assignments than you do unfortunate ones. Um, yeah, well but said. If, if you're smart, you know what to take from each assignment. Because remember, every every unit that you're currently in is the worst unit you've ever been a part of, and the one you just left is the greatest unit, unit you were ever in. So, I mean, that's that's welcome to uh, your military career, right? Um, that's right. Okay, so how quickly? Um, I mean, you're an SFOD, uh, so you you know that something is moving quickly for you guys right after 9/11. How quickly do you actually get to combat? Yeah, I, you know, I guess my my first exposure was uh, in October of '01. You know, when we did uh, an air assault raid into into Afghanistan, and my job as the fire support officer was 
you know, help develop the uh, fire support plan for the largest air assault raid, which was become the largest in history. And it was very, I mean, I was a captain promotable at the time. And one of my early jobs, I mean, I I wasn't even wearing rank at the time, was the brief then four-star General Franks, the CENTCOM commander on Mm -hmm. our plan. So it was a forced learning curve. And I was very fortunate because I had incredible, you know, peers. Um, I had incredible NCOs that were just, they were scarred with amazing uh, competency and, and experience. And then I had, you know, probably the most empowering for me is I had leaders, leaders that just trusted me. And, you know, for example, prior to briefing general Franks, I, I didn't have to over back brief anybody. You know, I had a quick chat with my commander and he's like, okay, you got it. Go, go do great things. And that really led to some, you know, a, a confidence level that was not cocky, uh, but certainly was empowering. Uh, is it, are you referencing Tora Bora when you talk about that initial invasion? Well, that was the second one. So okay. the initial one was the raid in the get-go. Later on, yeah. I was part of supporting the effort in the Tora Bora. Let me, and, let me, I'm going to ask yeah. you, you're going to throw a name out there, and I, I assume you know who he is, but you, you know Dalton Fury then, I assume. Thomas Green. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were, yeah, we have a, serve, we served together. I, uh, I read his book, Kill Bin Laden. Um, yep. It was outstanding. Um, and for those of you who haven't read it, if you'd like to know what it was like in late 2001 chasing after Osama bin Laden and literally how close we were to getting him in December of 2001, that is the book you need to read. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, you'll read, and I'll give you just a quick synopsis and back me up here on this, Will, but you know, um, two Green Berets just sitting on a mountaintop, freezing their asses off in Afghanistan, guiding airstrikes for days on end. They crawled up a mountain, stayed there in a hooch. Around surrounded by Taliban all everywhere, calling an airstrikes for two or three days, come back down, rotate out. Um, and and Dalton Fury, who uh, it's a pen name. If you want to find out who he is, I'm not going to. You know, you can, I'm sure the internet will tell you. He's passed on now, by the way. He had cancer and died. Um, but you know, in the very opening of the book, he details three reasons why Bin Laden escaped. One, Afghan pro- the, the the determinant use of Afghan proxies, because at the, remember at the beginning of the war. We wanted to make sure that the Afghans were the ones who caught bin Laden. We had to have an Afghan face on this because, uh, for whatever reason, politics overrode the idea of going to get somebody who killed 3,000 Americans. I'll never understand that. Why? Uh, two, lack of, of ground support troops, which you needed. They, they constant request for more rangers, more people on the ground to be able to, um, you know, provide more, uh, you know, how do I want to phrase this? You need people on the ground to own land. You can't own it from the air. As much as you can drop bombs all you want, it's it's as simple as the board game risk. You have to be in someone's backyard in order to own the land. That's the only way you can do it. That's been a standard premise of war since the dawn of history. And then three, um, failure to uh, failure to to allow the Pakistanis to provide them an exit route. Um, those are the three things he said is the reason why we didn't. We were close. They knew that they had him. Um, he, I think he even tells a story, and correct me again if I'm wrong here. They had him. They knew he was injured. They knew he was he was ready to be captured. Two Afghan warlords were fighting over who was going to be the one to be able to go up there and get him and say that they got him because of the prestige of Afghan warlords and clans and everything else. And so it's a fantastic read. I, I highly, highely recommend it if you're into that sort of thing. But that about sum, summarizes it, right? <laughs> wow. I mean, that to me was, Mark, that was a great um summary and it wasn't just a few it was actually 
what would be called terminal guidance team. So they were, they were fairly large. So while there were only a few individuals doing that terminal guidance of the airstrikes, there was a lot that went into. So it was probably, you know, between 10 and 12 men that took to provide security, do the logistics, but you're right. At the end of the day, there were only a few guys calling in those airstrikes. And I think you summed it up. I, I, the only thing I would add <clears throat> is I was privy to some conversations that at the time were very disheartening because there were some senior leaders who underestimated the American warfighter and hesitated in deploying troops to Tora Bora at the time. And I only say that because, you know, within 24 months, there were uh, reservists and National Guardsmen, not that they're not competent soldiers, but they were walking those same mountains for their deployment that people thought were going to be too tough for, you know, the Ranger force, for example. Right. So, you know, there, there all of us learned a lot of lessons. Um, Dalton Fury was an amazing leader. I mean, he, he to this day inspires the heck out of me. And uh, that book is a must read. And it's inc- in fact, if anything, it, it understates, he that book has zero exaggeration. Yeah, that book reality. It that was, book. That I mean, was the first real so book that. I, in fact, I w- I would have added a lot more positive descriptions to that book because you know I was on the other side of the radio speaking with him. In fact, we had text chats back then. There was you know there was it wasn't texting like today, but we would get on these little rants with one another. Um, yeah. So I mean, th- thanks for bringing that up because no, that, it, that, that should be like a must read for young, you know, leaders in the, in uh, the military. A hundred percent. And it was like the first real book for me that um, opened my eyes to sort of reading about military history. Right. And understanding uh, and, and sort of even a precursor to what we do here on the hazard ground. Like that first person point of view of combat uh, really takes you there like nothing else can. Um, you know, it, the, the, the 2020 documentary that they do or whatever else is out there. Nothing beats the individuals uh, telling the sights, the smells, the sounds, the fears, the emotions, and everything uh, of combat like um, like a first-person account of it does. So again, Kill Bin Laden by Dalton Fury, absolutely a, a worthwhile read. So you're, you're, do, you're calling in airstrikes. Are, at any point in time, are you, while this is going on, the beginning of, of the Afghanistan war, uh, and you're chasing Bin Laden, is, is, is there a part of you that's like, how the hell did I end up here? I just wanted to be a defensive end. Like, yeah. like what? <laughs> yeah, I know that that's a good question. And, you know, I was, um, well, for example, for that initial air assault raid into uh, Afghanistan, the lead pilot, Rob, Rob Dickerson, he was the captain, my freshman. So when I was a freshman football player at army West point, Rob Dickerson was our offensive captain tight end. He was the lead pilot for that air assault raid. <laughs> You know, so there were these, I was always somewhat connected. There was ended up being a lot of army football players that I interacted with over, over the years. Uh, you know, many of them that I served with some, we were in the same unit, others, we might just serve together episodically. And, you know, between Iraq and Afghanistan, I got to meet with many of them and it, and it really led to some of the things that we had spoken about year, years earlier, you know, playing football and uh, you know, taking that now to, to be candid, more, more, much more important fields. And, um, yeah. So I, as I reflected back, I was just grateful for, for, for the opportunity. I mean, uh, th- does the conversation get a conversation ever go on the radio? Psh, hey, hey, Robinson, 
Remember that guy's ass you kicked against Tulane? <laughs> Do the same thing to them. Go for well, it. You know, like, I mean, is that – you guys joke around with each other like that? Yeah, I – I guess the one, and of course at the time we weren't allowed to take pictures, but I do reflect back um, in 2003 before the lead units crossed the border into Iraq. Uh, we had five Army football players all assembled together, and we just had this, I mean, we weren't, you know, of course there was no alcohol or anything like that, but I think we all had some Copenhagen and we're just chatting about our experiences. And the years varied from like 1987 all the way to 1996, uh, but there were five Army football players directly involved in that initial special operations invasion into Iraq. And we all, you know, kind of, I say joked about it. We all just reminisced. Right. It was like, yeah, man, you know, back then we used to hear about the old days and, you know, guys in from the Spanish-American War through World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, you know, Grenada, Panama. And now here we are, uh, you know, building our own legacy. And several of those guys you know, a couple of them still continue to serve now at the flag officer level. You know, others had very distinguished careers that just got out earlier. But that's one thing that reflects on me, Mark, when, when, when you asked that. I really wish that I had that picture. But back then, unlike today, it was very strict. It was like, yeah, you take a photo, you're out. Like, that is OPSEC. Yeah. So, well, especially where you were in the memory. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, well, we're all younger and thinner, and maybe that's better anyway. So. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> as, as a fire support officer, obviously, you know, you're not that close to actual combat gunfire, you know, danger close to anything bad happening to you, or are you at a certain point? And, and the only reason I ask where I'm going with this is when you start sustaining the first levels of casualties at this thing, what what's going through your mind? Yeah, and... I think that's great. And I think, you know, as we possibly get short on time, we can fast forward on that. But, you know, as I was in the world here, Will, this is, this is, I think, I think I ended up having about 26 months deployed uh, while serving in that special operations capacity. And great majority was, you know, as a classic staff officer, mostly in what might be the assault command post. And, you know, I would always be with the commander uh, where, wherever he was on the battlefield, but then there was a very unique time that really shaped me and shaped me for later on. Um, we ended up having a shortage of terminal air controllers. And in the spring of 2004, I was sent down to serve uh, with a small team. There were only eight of us um, in what would be called now Fallujah 1. So not, not Fallujah 2, the fall of 04, but Fallujah yep. 1. Okay. And, you know, that was my first opportunity to be directly to do the exact terminal guidance. And while at, at, at other times I might have been shot at here or there or been far away, you know, it was it was just different. Sure. But this was my first time and it was it was invigorating. Um, it was inspiring. We were only one vehicle, but the combat power and the talent of those men was just I never once felt scared. Never once. And uh, it was just very empowering. And that was just a couple of days. And later on, I also served in that role with one of our coalition forces. Um, and that and that really helped shape me because while, you know, there's an importance of the staff officer, the battle staff, being with the commander, you know, all that, there was uh, something very, very inspiring being in that direct interaction, right? Having the RPGs going off around you under disc of fire, but knowing the men you're with are going to, uh, be very lethal very quickly and uh, not being cavalier, not being aloof, 
but in, uh, I just, and maybe it was just na- naivety. I was, uh, you know, I felt very confident. I'll put it that way. How cute of you to say that we all know the importance of staff officers. Staff sucks. We know that. Okay, just call it what it is. Right? <laughs> I avoided it for the better part of my career until I became a field grade. Yeah, no, but no, but, I can't escape it. No, as you know, to to enable the warfighter, you need those competent. Listen, folks. I'm a combat service support puke. I know about enabling the warfighter. I don't have to be a staff officer to do it. You know, I mean, there's there's still ways that you know being in the rear can actually you know matter a lot more than sitting there That's at a right. desk. Uh, you know, listen, hey, uh, yes, being a staff officer is important. It just sucks compared to ever being in, 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 in the That's fight, right. right? You know, just it's, right. it's not there's, – there's, there's being a spectator, uh, there's being a, a cheerleader, and then there's, there's being in the game. And, uh, That's right. You know, we all want to be in the game at some point. So, um, and, and really the, re- the reason I uh, shared that is that really inspired me, you know, my next assignment with the Asymmetric Warfare Group, which was only started in uh, 2004 – and I was at the Naval uh, Staff College at, at the time, and I was uh, set to head back to the 82nd Airborne, which was an exciting assignment. Mm-hmm. But, but my time as a field artillery officer had really come to an end in special operations at the time. Were you sad when <clears> it <throat> happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I just mean, knew that look, was inevitable. And, well, I say this because, again, I've been fortunate enough to taste that life a little bit, right? Like I deployed with 5th yeah, and 10th Yeah, I, I, I was I, – I, yeah, it, it was the crowning part of it – was, it was the best – Time of my career. It was the best 15 months of my career. Battalion Command didn't beat it. 06 Command's not going to beat it. It was the best part of my career. Uh, It's where me personally, just my attitude and and who I am, I fit in a lot better in that community. I understand it a lot better. I appreciate the being treated like an adult. I appreciate the responsibility. I appreciate the autonomy. But I also appreciate the fact that, you know, that work hard, play hard mentality that these guys have. And that you can flip it like a switch. You know, we can goof off and act like jackasses, but boom, when it's time to go, put your game face on and let's go. You know, yeah. um, and, and you're doing the most high-level work with the most high-level people. Uh, and it's the one place in my career where, where I learned the most important lesson in my military career in how to play the role that you're in. Because not everybody has to be the superstar. Not everybody has to be the That's tip right. of the spear. Not everybody has to be the guy who kicks down the door. I enjoyed my role of being the support guy who helped those. And there was nothing, I say repeatedly, the only way I knew I was doing a good job in that community is because they kept giving me more work. That was the signal that you were accepted. We trust you. We believe in you. We know you can do this here. Get this done for us. Yeah. And you know, that, that makes me, that makes me think back to one of my commanders. And and unfortunately I, I only, he was only in command about nine months and he had a, um, had a health issue. But he shared to the staff, and this is when I was back at the unit, he said, your relevancy to the mission is not proportional to your proximity to the target. That's a very powerful, again, your relevancy to the mission is not proportional to your proximity to the target. And he was really talking about, you know, it's all about that Intel analyst who understands where's the X, where's the objective, you know, defining the environment. It's about the communications all those folks that are making that happen, allowing us to have the situational awareness and to communicate. It's about the logistics. It's about the mobility aspect. You know, as a fire supporter, it's about setting the conditions for that final uh, maneuver. That was very powerful. And I've, I've continued to use that because I think it's applicable in, in business, in athletics, in you know, whatever you're doing, but certainly war fighting. And, uh, you know, his name was Ron. Ron Russell, and I'll always remember that, your proximity, your relevancy to the mission is not proportional to your proximity to the target. Mm-hmm. So I, as I transitioned out and went to the staff college, I was really debating what, 
what to do, ready to head off back to the 82nd, which I would have been very satisfied with. Um, I learned about the asymmetric warfare group and learned about the opportunities to serve there. And that ended up being a very, very rewarding and enlightening and high learning curve over the next two and a half years. I'll add one more quote that, uh, that I had learned from, uh, your, your compadre there and my friend JC Glick. Uh, and I learned this a lot in JC is a former uh, guest here on the hazard ground, but also a former ranger back commander. Um, and, and you learn this in the special operations community if you're not part of it. Um, I learned what my my capacity was versus my capability. My capacity was a lot larger than my capability as a standard logistics officer, as a, as a mid-grade captain and a logistics officer. My capacity was a lot bigger because they threw me into situations that I never had to deal with before, but I just learned to deal with them. So I had a much larger capacity than what my capability had taught me to that point. Uh, and that's, that, that's something that's always stuck with me, and I, and I speak to my subordinates about it routinely, about – Let's figure out what our capacity is, not our capability, because uh, you're limited by capability. You're not limited by capacity. Uh, and that's something that you learn in the Excellent. special ops community. Yeah. And then then what was great about going into the asymmetric warfare group is that we got to deploy for myself was two additional tours into Iraq. But now I got to serve with you know, the uh, what may be called the conventional forces, the general purpose forces. Mm-hmm was very unique and it was both army and and marine corps and we were sent to where it was most hazardous so i got to spend a lot of time in ramadi fallujah baghdad certain areas and it was both in 06 when things weren't going well and then a year later in 07 during the surge where you know i was there when we had the uh Sunni awakening and in the turn with the tribal forces and it was amazing it i was so fortunate and, you know, and I serve everything from MIT teams that were as small as five service members out there with their Iraqi partners to uh, the Iraqi commandos to the OGA forces. I mean, it, it was just amazing. And I learned I, I, I gained a great, great, great appreciation for the slog of what counterinsurgency takes at the conventional force level. Yeah. And um, not to sound disparaging, you know, the, those special operators are, you know, the best, the best. However, absolutely. what they go through pales in comparison to the, you know, Lance Corporal Army PFC who doesn't get to go home. Uh, it doesn't go back to the FOB doesn't get to take a shower every night, doesn't get to eat three hot A's, doesn't Skype with mama at night. Those men and women were living the slog and I gained an incredible appreciation. And I also learned not only are they living a slog, but they have an amazing awareness of their environment. And when you're sitting back at the fob, looking at Intel imagery and reading Intel reports that pales a comparison to what that PL platoon sergeant company commander knows on the ground. And that's really helped me. So I got to take this kind of specialized experience where we're going after high value targets and then an asymmetric warfare group really get exposed firsthand to folks that live counterinsurgency. And it was very unique because I think when you combine those two experiences, it's um, it gives you a, a depth and a breadth of a appreciation. Yeah. And for the civilians listening, I would, I would say it this way, you know, the, 
the special ops guys are the sprinters and the, uh, the, the conventional <laughs> warfare guys are the marathoners. You know, they're in it for the long haul. Uh, you know, the, the sprinters get in and get out real quick and they're done. Uh, they take a break, but then they have to run really fast again. Uh, and they run really fast often. But the other guys are just out there just continually in a long jog, beating the crap out of themselves for an extended period of well time. Well said. Thank, thanks for translating that because yeah, I, I had not thought of that analogy. No, that's I think kind of my job. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do want to ask you about the invasion of Iraq because you had mentioned it before. I, I want to talk more about Asymmetric Warfare Group, but the yeah. invasion of Iraq, you, were, you, you mentioned that you were part of that. How was that experience for you? Yeah, that, that was very unique. You know, we had a force that went in and um, looked at for some of that initial WMD and then quickly trans transition you 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 mentioned dalton fury there's a great series of books written by another he was my boss at the time pete blaber and you know he's somebody that you may want to consider because he had a great experience but he also did some unique things and that here we were the special operations task force but he was able to uh, get us task organized with some m1a1 abrams that up in um the to crit area were really decisive. Mm -hmm. So imagine this special operations force coupled with the Ranger force coupled with M1, A1 tanks at a first cav. So it was a pretty diverse lethal force. It, you know, being a a somewhat amateur historian, it it reminded me of, you know, task force Darby that after uh, uh, Colonel Darby commanded the Ranger, uh, the world war II Ranger regiment, he was given a larger task force that included an, a, uh, you know, armored unit. And so it was very similar in spirit to this ad hoc organization that was able to do some uh, decisive things. So that was, again, a great lesson for myself was seeing the uh, coupling of, of capabilities together. And then also it was the first time because prior to that experience in Iraq, I hadn't worked directly with any of the host nation folks. And we really got some great insights into the uh, Iraqi expats, I would call them that were providing us insights into what was going on on the ground. Um, I want to talk about casualties for a moment uh, in, in the invasion. Uh, obviously, we sustained them a lot more quickly in Iraq than we did at the beginning of Afghanistan. Is there a part of you that as a leader, when you're going through all this, um, where you start to realize maybe that this isn't worth the price that we're paying right off the bat? Because at the beginning of it, you know, I mean, obviously – it's about objective, but still, when you start to really understand the amount of loss of life that we're, we're heading towards, the amount of American loss of life we're heading towards, it, it, I, would, it wouldn't, I wouldn't think less of you if you were like, this was not something that we were prepared for. Yeah, I, I mean, relatively speaking, and every loss is significant, but relatively speaking, our casualties were incredibly low in both uh, encounters. It wasn't until really 0405 that um, I would say, and again, I'm not sounding, I don't mean to sound callous or, you know, disparagingly, but that that's when the casualties really started to, to weigh in. So when you ask, you know, is it worth it? That's, I'm not even prepared to answer that, that question, but I think given a all volunteer force, you know, it's not a conscript service. Everybody understands the ultimate consequence. And at least at the time, you know, we didn't have the uh, clarity of, 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 of hindsight. I would say the majority of service members, two different topics. One, going to Afghanistan, that was clear, directly related to Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, 9-11. Going into Iraq, I think most of us understood that it, our leadership 
uh, was convinced it was the right thing. And it wasn't until I would say almost a decade later that we really started to think back to, you know, what was the strategic objectives and, and what was the, what's the cost? I mean, I think when it, when it talks about casualties, there's one individual in particular, and I'll just share this story, although it's mm-hmm. not easy. You know, we were in Iraq and this was the early days and uh, we were going over uh, the next day's concept of operation. <clears throat> and one of my terminal guidance that was going to be out there at the leading edge, you know, said to me, man, I, he said, well, I just don't feel good about tomorrow. And I said, man, you're going to be okay. Cause he was no longer directly working for me. He was attached to another unit. I said, man, don't worry. You're going to be fine. You're great. You're, you're very confident. He goes, yeah, but uh, I know I'm not talking right, right to you. And I feel a little uneasy. And of course I just dismissed it. I said, don't worry. Well, he ended up being a casualty of a fratricide incident. And that did strike me hard because he ended up, you know, he had a wife that was pregnant at the time. And, you know, I think he was 25 years old. And Yeah. And I've often thought, you know, was it worth it? But I, but I would tell you, he was a very motivated individual. He was uh, incredibly competent, very motivated. And at least what he conveyed to me wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Uh, but he ended up paying the ultimate price. And, and unfortunately, it was because of friendly fire. How much of, of that do you bear as a leader? I mean, how much, you know, does that weigh on you? Yeah, I think that's, I think all of us have to weigh in on that, you know, and uh, there is the friction of war and that goes back to, you know, antiquity, <clears throat> you know, and there, there have been, unfortunately, any number of incidents of fratricide is, is uh, too many, but we haven't eliminated it yet. You, you know, never at, will at though. Top, I yeah, mean, it's, at the it's time impossible. it was a, exactly it, it was a direct fire incident. It was a friend or foe. His unit was way in front of the front line of trace. I mentioned those tanks. It ended up being one of the tanks that wasn't familiar with some of these unique vehicles because it wasn't a standard U.S. vehicle. He assumed it was the enemy and ended up engaging it direct fire with an M1A1. <clears throat> So, yeah, I, I think as as leaders, we can certainly reflect back. Uh, but there was friction. You know, so while I was complimenting this idea of ad hocery and putting units together and building these just in time, you know, organizations that do great things, there is some risk involved. And clearly what we achieved was was significant. So I think ultimately leaders have to balance that risk first reward. And I would say that's relevant, whether you're you know, leading a nonprofit, a business, or a, a military entity, you know, always weighing that risk versus reward. So you move on to the asymmetric warfare group, uh, which again, to civilians listening, probably sounds like a really fancy term. Uh, and I mean, I'll let you do this sort of uh, bottom line up front of the whole thing. But, you know, this is kind of where we start to put multiple echelons, multiple units, multiple forces together um, to achieve you know, better combat power. Right. Um, but that experience for you, uh, you, you talked about how much it meant to you and, and everything else. Uh, I know it's hard to encapsulate, you know, in a short amount of time, but it just kind of take me through a little bit of, you know, what you thought going into it and what you got out of it. Yeah. I will try to be succinct as possible, Mark, <laughs> but, and you, you got know, time. I just, you know, it, it's a lot yeah, to explain. Understand the audience is both, you know, veterans, service members, as well as civilians. It was an organization that was established that, to put it in a civilian term, it was going to be consultants and advisors. It was the idea was combat consultants, 
that could go out there and share experience with the supported unit. And it was individuals that were experienced and trained to provide that combat consulting. And there was a a triad of folks. So the one component was service members, and that was approximately one-third of the force. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was a member of. There was a third that were DA civilians, and um, that was an important role. And then there was only a third in the organization, but they were far greater in terms of the combat advisories, and those were contractors. And the majority of them came out of special operations with incredible experience. I mean, there, there were men that had over 40 years of experience that now were being pushed down to that lowest level. And when I say lowest, not just battalion company down to the platoon level and uh, working with those leaders and then providing perspective all the way back. And in fact, early on, we would return from our deployments and part of that presentation included the Pentagon at the time, um, you know, General Casey, um, General Cody, who was the G3 and then uh, Deputy Chief of Staff and General Schumacher. You know, when I was the troop commander forward, I had a visit from the Chief of Staff, General Schumacher at the time. And that was that was fairly stressful. I mean, that for those that don't know, General Schumacher was almost like a fictitious character, you know, played in the 1972 uh Orange Bowl for Wyoming football, and then went on to serve multiple distinguished years, including commanding Delta Force and retiring as a four-star. I mean, he's coming over to ask me what's going on, and not just me, the men that we were with. So it, it was very interesting organization, and the whole idea was to take these lessons learned, then immediately feed that back to the deploying forces that were set to deploy in the next 6, 12, 24 months, and then ultimately how do we shape larger army issues like training, education, manning, equipping? So some of the near short-term goals were what are some equipment issues that we can identify that reduce threats from IEDs that allow us to communicate better, allow us to you know, identify friend versus foe, understand site exploitation, um, handling intelligence. So the among all the what we would call war fighting functions, there were elements that we wanted to take lessons learned real real time, share them with leaders that were in theater, share those with the units getting ready to deploy, then ultimately share that with the Army as a learning institution. So that's as succinct as I can say it. Yeah. And if you have any additional questions. No. <laughs> uh, no. I mean, I, I was part of foreign internal defense, which uh, is very similar to it um, in, in the special operations community. That's basically train the trainers, you know, train the trainers. Right. I mean, it's it, it's we are we are working hand in hand with counterparts from indigenous forces where we give them all the tools they need to train their people uh, and, and bring them up to speed. So, it, it, you know, that, that's just a small part of it. Um, and, and to a certain extent. You know, this whole concept, and I don't want to get into a bigger political thing, but this was the whole concept that was pitched for the better part of a decade that was going to allow us to get out early, right? Like, like this was our exit strategy, um, was that if we train them, you know, they will be able to do this on their own. Uh, and whether you want to call it bravado, um, foolishness, or some sense of, uh, you know, uh, well, of course we can, they can do it like we can. Um, that never actually, you know, worked for any sustainable period of time. 
Yeah. Hey, you know, Mark, I, I just can't restrain myself from sharing about that. So everything I described with the asymmetric warfare group was really for us internal U.S. forces. Right. And while I was fortunate enough to spend time with the Marines and fortunate enough to, because of those MIT teams especially, to spend time with sailors and airmen, we were an Army institution. So while the Marines were always polite to us and allowed us access and engagement, it was really a, a Army function. <clears throat> we never, because of that FID requirement, which is a special operations you know, primary core competency, it wasn't necessarily training um, to violate or to uh, influence or, I guess, duplicate any FID effort. There was an understanding of what has now become like the, the SFAB or whatever the larger brigade working right. with those forces. But I would say one thing I learned during that time, because I was able to spend times with the Iraqis, is they were competent. We just weren't listening to them. And it was during the Iraqi, the Sunni awakening that I really, really learned just how competent they were. I mean, the insurgency we definitely overestimated them. There weren't that many and they were very effective against us. Uh, and you mentioned a little bit of hubris or bravado, whatever you want to call it. You know, one thing that I learned over time is, you know, how about ask the local force, like ask the, uh, the host nation, how to, how to do things. And unfortunately in Afghanistan, and this is my personal opinion is that we try to build an army in our own image, as opposed to emboldening, and empowering those core competencies that the Afghans do well. So what you saw, you know, when everyone talks about, well, what about all these vehicles? Well, that's not part of the Afghan warrior culture. Nope. And, you know, Sergeant Major Mike Hall and General McChrystal, who I was fortunate to serve underneath as a task force commander in Afghanistan, used to always talk about just empowering the Afghans. And I think as a larger institution, we didn't do that. We, we, we tried to build like a 1955 version of the U.S. Army. And that's not how they fight. No. And we were preparing them to fight an enemy that didn't exist. <clears throat> and all that equipment and money that we poured into became ways and means for craft, a graft and uh, corruption. And if we had merely said, what does it take to defeat the Taliban and listen, uh, maybe all we would have bought and you know, maybe all we would have purchased for the Afghan army were motorcycles, communications, some lethal weapons, mm -hmm. and that's it. Uh, like, uh, why, <laughs> why do you need MRAPs against? Here is the, here's the best example. You ever seen the movie Three Amigos? Steve, no. Mar Steve Martin, <laughs> Chevy Chase? Okay, well, for those who have seen it, okay, when El Guapo wants to take over the town, the Three Amigos, who are actors, okay, they say to the people in the town, they go, what is it the people of Santa Poco do well? And he says, we can sew. And they're like, why didn't I think of this sooner? And then they come up with an idea of how to use sewing against the enemy because that's what they do well. Again, to your point, very similar. Um, I, I can give an Afghan a 50 cal, but if they don't know how to employ it properly and what to do with it, it doesn't matter. I mean, again, a, a, a LMTV doesn't help you on roads in Afghanistan that are extremely narrow, um, hard to traverse. Uh, going upwards sideways across a mountain. Like, it's just, you know, they need donkeys and mules. Like, you know, you, you bring them those, they know what to do with those things. You give them a vehicle and a Humvee, all they do is flip it over, steal the tires, sell them somewhere else, burn the inside, you know, take take the, the carpet off the, or the, the, the fabric off the seats and, and boom. You know, I mean, that's... You, you, yeah, and, 
succinctly yeah, you described we just, it. We just built an army that, uh, but see again, that is, well, that is our not. hubris because we said, look, we, we did this. We could teach them to do this week. We take the dumbest privates in the world and teach them how to do stuff. We put yeah, and, we, any yokel off I the think, street. You know, for any for anybody that that does does understand the rhythm of of history, it was very similar to what our experience in Vietnam, where we forced uh, equipment and doctrine onto the Vietnamese that they necessarily didn't want, uh, but that was the plan. So it was so similar, and there is a great rhythm of history. Coincidentally, so both, same result. <laughs> Yeah, so both <laughs> Vietnam and Afghanistan, we force-fed those host nation equipment and materials and doctrine and trainers to address a threat that did not exist. <clears throat> and we didn't address the threats that were at hand. And if we had just listened a little more and maybe invested more in human capital versus equipment, and I don't understand enough, and I'm not a great conspir- conspiracy theorist, but there is you know, what Eisenhower called the congressional military industrial complex. He didn't call it the industrial complex initially, but the congressional complex that, you know, people were benefiting from these major contracts that were giving equipment as far back as 1960s and 70s to the Vietnamese, continuing on to the Afghans. And I would argue throughout the world. So, you know, let's, if we just learn to listen to what our supported host nation needs and, um, yeah, I think that would be an effective lesson learned. And hopefully there will, there will be less sunk cost for all of our casualties. And again, as a, a, a friend and mentor of mine, uh, who also was a colonel in the Army, Mike Jason, uh, who was a former guest on the podcast, had best described it. Our other flaw was not recognizing that we fought one 20-year war, but we fought 21-year wars because every time we rotated somebody else out, we changed the doctrine where we changed the... SOPs. We changed enough that they knew that every time, 12 months later, somebody else was coming in to tell me something different. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, you know, you're never going to build anything continuous um, with that. And so, again, uh, we don't want to lament, you know, foreign policy and, and all that stuff. That's, you know, we'll save that for, for when I get to work college and we, we just, we That's do a right. podcast on work college. You can write your uh, dissertation on. Yeah. Well, uh, I already, I already have it written. So it's just up here. I just got to put it down on paper. But anyway, we digress. Okay, so um, when do you know it's time for you to retire? I mean, do you decide on your own, as the Army yeah, said? I mean, there were, there well, we've had enough of you. Yeah, family, personal, you know, professional. I just decided it was uh, time. Loved it. And then I was ready to move on to my next chapter, which I had always shared with my close friends and family. I wanted to get into athletic administration. I love sport. Don't. Um, love it in a way that I wanted to coach because I'm just not a big X's and O's person, but I do love, you know, supporting coaches and athletes and the opportunity with Towson University came about. You know, one of my lessons. No desire to go back to West Point. I thought that was like the easiest in for all you guys. I really liked Maryland, wanted to stay in the area. And, you know, one of the lessons I would share for any of our transitioning service members or, or veterans is, you know, entry is going to be hard, especially if you're working outside. You, If you want to stay within the military contractor area, then, you know, I think your direct experience is going to be relevant. But for, for myself, going into athletic administration, I learned that I had to put some sweat equity into it. And I spent my first 90 days as a volunteer, and I literally was putting up volleyball nets. Uh, but what I was doing was, one, demonstrating commitment, 
learning from folks that were working at the you know lowest level mm-hmm. and really gaining understanding of what it took to support athletic teams. You know, so after 90 days of doing those jobs, <clears throat> I was given my first paid opportunity. And then six months later, I was promoted. And then very shortly after that was the deputy. So in hindsight, you would think, wow, within a year, you were the deputy uh, athletic director. Yes, but understanding that I started as a you know volunteer for 90 days, initial entry, 90 days, next job for six months, and then that job occurred. And at times it was it was humbling. Well, um, I was going to say, it was really uh, worth it. you went from being in 06 uh, to going back to being a bitch lieutenant uh, right oh, out the ranks. No, no. <laughs> I, I was a PFC. When I, when I first started, I mean, I, I was doing what a volunteer does. Yeah. So like I was with the student interns. You know, I was with... <laughs> 22 year olds putting up volleyball nets. And yeah, I just thought that's okay. If I want to get into this profession, because while everyone's polite, thank you for your service. They don't know what your capabilities are. Right. But while I was doing that, I was also helping them with developing plans and working the strategy. So it was the ability, you know, stay humble enough to understand that you have to uh, create your own opportunities. So that, that was my one thought I wanted to share because like athletic administration, there's very few veterans out there. You can probably count them on two hands, the number of veterans working in that space, although they may be growing. So if you're going to a field that isn't, doesn't have a lot of military connections, that's okay. Just give yourself a chance, give yourself some time. Don't be hard on yourself and be willing to take those initial opportunity jobs. And then people will see your, uh, your talent, your, capability and your capacity and then you'll be given additional responsibility so that's just my i learned this in the media. transitioning you know service members i learned this in the media field very early on sometimes you have to take a job you don't want to do to get a job you do want to do and that's essentially what you what you did right uh, in this case a volunteer right. job that's not even a job because jobs are paid uh but nonetheless <laughs> sometimes you got to volunteer for shit things in order to get good things yeah i get it um that's right so you go through this whole thing at towson um and uh, I mentioned you were part of Major League Lacrosse. And again, MLL now is folded into part of the PLL, the Premier Lacrosse League. Um, how did you get involved in lacrosse? I know you'd mentioned that you had liked it and wanted to play it, but you were a football yeah, player. Yeah, you know, so my, um, I grew up playing lacrosse Long Island, you know, Huntington Boys Club. And there you go. Yeah, then my uh, fifth year at West Point, I ended up playing lacrosse, and it was a great experience. We beat Navy for the first time in six years, and it was just a great experience. You know, I was coached by Hall of Famer, Jack Emmer. And so fast forward, as much as I love Towson Athletics, you know, it was almost a seven-day-a-week job just because of the way the seasons are. Yeah. You know, there's always sport. There were 18 sports. And and one of my old Army lacrosse teammates, Adam Silva, was then president of the Bayhawks. And we were just getting together for a cup of coffee. And he had mentioned that he was looking for some additional uh, – you know, folks to develop their staff. <clears throat> and at the time for me, it was just appropriate um, to do less. You know, I, at that time, I wouldn't call it burnout. That's, that's too extreme, but I was looking to just do less. So I spent that just about a year with the Bayhawks and I did not understand the bigger uh, strategic environment that was going on with the PLL, the MLL. Yeah. It was a great year, you know, coach Dave Cottle who coached us to the last MLL championship. And mm-hmm. you, know, you mentioned uh, Thompson. He's incredible. We just wow, had an incredible yeah. team, great coach. It was a fun experience, but I think the business of sport kicked in. And as you know, the MLL folded and, you know, the PLL kind of won that, uh, won that uh, 
that that competition. Yeah, well, uh, don't want to get into a lacrosse conversation, but there's also the NLL, the National Lacrosse League, the indoor, oh, they- the indoor box league, which again, you're competing for the same players who play indoor. A lot of these guys play indoor and outdoor, and uh, you had too many leagues in too many cities and not enough. And uh, the PLL, Mike, uh, Mike, and Paul Rabel. Paul Rabel is one of the most famous lacrosse players ever. Um, you know, they start the Premier Lacrosse League and they kind of do things a little bit differently. Uh, they use a tour-based model as opposed to a city model, which, you know, a lot of these teams do. Tour-based, like golf, you know, you go from city to city and play there. That's what they do with the PLL. They go from city to city to city and play there as opposed to having a team in in Baltimore, a team in New York, a team in Denver, a team in Texas, you know. So, anyway. Oh, yeah. And that that is interesting from a, you know, marketing standpoint yeah. because – even after 20 years, the Bayhawks did not have what I would call an active core support base. Did not. Yeah. Neither did the team out of Long Island. And if you can't get it done on Long Island or Annapolis area, then it's just not going to get done. When it comes to lacrosse, yes, 100%. I mean, so. that's it. And I, I think the tour model, at least for the next transition years, is the right way to go. Sure. You can, you Whereas, can, but you can expand has a great lacrosse. Ex- you can expand lacrosse just because you expose it to people who wouldn't normally see it, right? Um, yes. It's kind of like bringing yes. NASCAR to New York, to Long Island. Like, you know, it's not something that people do, but if you built a track out, if there was a track out there and you, you put a race there, people would likely show up. Right. And as much as I personally love lacrosse, it's just not captivated a big fan base. I mean, just look at attendance records. You know, when you look at <clears throat> even the highest attended college lacrosse games, are, are, are less than women's basketball, women's college basketball. And that's just reality. And then ESPN spoke loudest um, a couple of years ago when we were talking, there was discussions of moving the NCAA lacrosse from Memorial weekend to, to later on in June. And ESPN said, that's fine, but we won't televise it. <clears throat> and lacrosse folks were, you know, flabbergasted. Of, <laughs> How dare they were you? Just like, what do you mean? How? They, they said, well, the reality of it is the college softball world series out has higher rankings viewing than college lacrosse final four. So think about that. The preliminary women's softball has higher TV viewing than the final four men's lacrosse. Yeah. Just for, you know, <laughs> no. And again, yeah, I get it. it. It's, it's a, it's a it's a very diverse uh, set of choices that people have nowadays, and they make them very carefully. Uh, but like it's always I, been that way. I mean, you can go back not not to beat this drum too loud, but while lacrosse attendance is down, there was never necessarily a heyday, right? And I think, unfortunately, not to turn this into a lacrosse conversation, <laughs> you know, as as lacrosse has become a private club sport. It's really uh, reduced the spectrum of participants. And while there may be these, you know, anecdotal success stories in, in Harlem and, you know, West Baltimore, those just simple anecdotes. At the end of the day, it's becoming more and more of an elite sport, and that leads to less and less people yeah. following it. Well, shout out to Scott Ratliff, uh, Georgia boy here who ended up going to Loyola. Shout out to Charlie <laughs> Toomey, winning 2012 National Championship. Go Greyhounds. Um they didn't get many championships at Loyola, so we got to we got to brag about the ones that we got. So, Absolutely, um, but Loyola is a great place, great school. All right. Uh, so after all this, how do you end up with uh, Soldiers to Sidelines? Yeah, well, while I was with the Bayhawks, I was exposed to Harrison and Soldiers to Sidelines, and learned about their mission. And as my kids tease me, they're like, "Dad, did you make this up?" 
you know, working with veterans, service members, <laughs> military spouses. And what we're going to announce coming up in May is with Gold Star family members, although not a large population, we think it's an important population to get involved in coaching at the, you know, scholastic community levels, the majority of our coaches, while we have about 3% at the collegiate or even professional level, the sweet spot for us is enabling and giving that renewed purpose back to our service members, veterans, military spouses in their community to make an impact on, on, uh, on youth. So for me, it's been a great blessing. I appreciate it every day. It's very aligned with my personal values and I get to talk to folks like you. So thanks, Mark. Well, okay. So just take me through the process then. If I am, and this is only for veterans, correct? Veteran service members, military and, and spouses. Spouse. Okay. So if I am a veteran or the spouse of a veteran and I want to coach softball or baseball, whatever, tell me what, what what's the process for uh, soldiers sidelines. Yeah. So, so right now we have some sport specificity and then I'll talk a little bit about okay. where we're going sport agnostic. So really our founder executive director, who's not a veteran, but got connected to the right folks, felt great compassion for this. And we really activated to where we are, are today during COVID because COVID forced soldiers, the sidelines to come up with a virtual model. Fortunately, we had all the curriculum uh, and that, enabled us two years ago to do our first virtual in May of 2020. And that's allowed us to grow from at the time, it was about 55 soldier coaches that have been through in person all the way to today where we have 700, nearly 720. I think the number is 718. So that virtual model is important. So it started with football. Then we developed lacrosse, basketball, sport performance. Sport performance is Think strength conditioning plus other aspects of performance, biomechanics, nutrition, sleep and, re- sleep and recovery, mental wellness. And then we started in 2021 and we continued it this year and we will into the future is our specific military women. That's allowed us to have two significant uh, cadres of military women, both veterans and service women to go through our coaching process. And then this year we're in August, are doing our first adaptive sport coaching. So when you ask baseball and, and uh, softball, we don't have a specific line of effort, but I right. would recommend for those interested in those sports, both our sport performance and certainly if you're a female, our military women's seminar. And over time, we do want to address some of the other sports. You mentioned baseball, of course, you know, that's America's pastime and softball. I mentioned how popular that is. There's even, you know, a demand signal out there because Boys and girls lacrosse is distinct enough that to truly do justice to uh, women's, you know, lacrosse, we do think in the future we'll have a women's line of effort for lacrosse coaching. And then we have a couple others to include rugby and uh, track and field. And then we even have a, when I say demand signal, you know, about a half dozen folks that are veterans that are actually officials that are recommending for us to develop a line of effort to help grow officials, which could be a great appeal. And of course, mm-hmm. critical in sport. So if you're a service member, veteran, military spouse today, you know, go to our website, www.soldiersidelines.org. We have our list of uh, seminars and we'd love to have you become a part of it. We do episodic uh, webinars as well, where we bring in talent that include both coaches and veterans and they talk about various issues. So uh, yeah, we're very, uh, open to membership. And then it's really part of a journey after that first seminar process, then they enter into a enduring journey. We've had folks now that have been part of us since 2018, 19, and they continue to grow. 
That's amazing. I mean, it really, it's uh it sounds fantastic. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny, you guys are actually doing something that um, you could say, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on it, but look, a lot of former military people have co-opted the idea of leadership, right? Like they've co-opted it to the civilian world as this thing that, you know, we do do it better than everybody else. Like, yes, absolutely we do. Like, I, I think that, you know, for especially, particularly for officers, that is our subject matter expert area is leadership, right? Like that's what we are taught to be. The actual functions of fire support officer, logistics officer, you know, cab scout, whatever it is, that doesn't matter. What we are really ultimately trained in is leadership. Um, and we have sort of co-opted this whole business where we can pitch leadership and how to lead to civilian companies across America. Uh Good for those people. Uh, I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong. I'm not saying that they are, their businesses are flawed. I'm not saying any of that at all. I think, and I know some of these people who do it, and I think they're fantastic individuals. However, comma, what you are actually doing is instead of selling this nebulous idea of leadership, you are taking a leader and allowing them to put their actual stuff in practice tangibly and affect other people. And I think that is a huge difference because you can put me in a boardroom full of people from Microsoft or Home Depot or whatever. And I can school them all on how to take a shit sandwich and make it into something wonderful, right? Like that's what I'm good at. Um, But what that doesn't do is it doesn't allow me to stand side by side with them and walk them through the process and figure it out. I give them my pitch. It's an hour. It's two hours. It's, you know, talking with them afterwards for 30 minutes and, you know, they never hear from me again unless they want to text me or whatever. But again, what you're doing is you're taking somebody like me who's got 20 plus years of leadership. And I'm now allowed to have a one-on-one on a routine basis with people who can take these skills and re-push them back out to people who are going to get a tangible benefit immediately on a routine basis. And I think that is something that is unique and special about what you're doing. Thanks, Mark. And I would I would just add to that. That is very well said is that our soldier coaches actually are in the arena as coaches. Right. And they're at the, the, the majority are at the scholastic and, and a youth level, but that's equally challenging. You know, oftentimes they're doing it as a volunteer. They're doing it part-time. They're doing it with youth, you know, capturing their att- uh, a attention. So what we, you know, the value added from soldier to the sidelines is direct to those uh, athletes. And we think it has a direct impact back to the community and then the implied effect, and we don't shy away from it, we think it's important to talk about, is that renewed purpose for the veteran. And candidly, I had many veterans uh, that are assault, you know, in soldiers the sidelines or our soldier coaches share with me their own testimonies of just how impactful coaching. In fact, uh, the first week, one of the individuals told me, if not for the team waiting for him that afternoon, he would have stuck a pistol in his mouth. And that was profound for me. Oh, 100%. And again, I think that for all of us, purpose is everything, right? Um, We're we're taught it, you know, privates are taught it from day one in basic training. Everything has a purpose. You're doing everything for a reason. Nothing is arbitrary. Uh, And and the same thing in leadership. We're all working towards a bigger picture. Um, You know, as officers, we're we're, we're operating, you know, a level up and two levels down. And there's so many different things that we have our hands in. You remove all that. And when your purpose is gone, you struggle to sort of find – uh, without somebody telling you <laughs> what you have to do next, it's like, uh, okay, I don't know what to do next, which is laughable in a sense because 
for people who have been in the military any extended period of time, you know you know what to do next. It's just you're so used to working towards something that is a, a pre-stated goal for you that um, you can react knowing that you're feeding into a bigger picture when that bigger picture is just live. Uh, it's, it's difficult for certain people to understand. So a hundred percent, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a very unique organization. It, it, I, you know, it's funny. I, I heard about it in the periphery, uh, before I had been introduced to you, um, and sort of just glossed over as, Oh, that's cute. You know, like, it, but you start to do some more research on it and really look at the impact that you guys are making. And I think, it, I, again, I think it's fantastic. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm not, talking poorly about anybody who who uses their leadership to teach civilian companies how to do things better, quicker, more streamlined, sharper, with more efficiency, all those things, that's fine. Um, but again, I, I know that there's only a certain amount that they're going to retain in any 30-minute hour speech that you give them. And people may feel like they want to run through a wall afterwards, but guess what? Oh, lunch break, I'm going, see ya. You know, it's not like they're, they're, <laughs> they, they, they uh, you know, union rules kick in, so to speak, and everything you just said for the past three hours is out the window. So uh, I just I love what you guys do from that standpoint. Well, thank you. I, I listen. I, I mean, it's been great talking to you. Um, I, there's so much more about your career that I really w- would love to have dove, dove into, uh, particularly about your your time in, in, in SVOD and, and everything that you have uh, have experienced. But you know, uh, you look back on 24 plus years. Uh, kind of what what stands out to you as the most sort of singular, uh, solitary thing that you know um, you know still stays with you about your career. It's really the the individuals, you know, the the people and the friends, you know, the commitment and the sacrifice uh, from our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines that I got to witness firsthand. And I know that may sound a little simplistic, but I really, as I mentioned, that that mid team out in the middle of you know Ramadi, that was a Marine Corps captain, a Air Force uh, E five a Navy corpsman, a army master sergeant. It was just the four of them at the time because some people were on leave and they were with about 65 Iraqis and they were doing amazing things. And, you know, none of them wore a long special forces tab or part of anything special, but they really, to me, represented the core of the American service member. And that's really stuck out with me. And then on a very personal note, are just the amazing friendships that still to this day. So within Soldiers of the Sidelines, one of the beauties of my job is I get to reach out and, and talk to the JC clicks and the Mike Halls and the Pete Blavers and, you know, the other men that I, that I served with. Um, and it gives me a great reason. So it's not just as my wife will sometimes tease me. Are you just calling your friends all day? So no, honey, here's the beauty of it. It's actually part of my job. So there you go. That's what I, you know, but I, but I really learned and I saw the grit of the American service member and that includes women. If uh, if someone had come along and told um, Will Huff, the senior at Bayshore High School, uh, that he was going to do all these things uh, as he was heading off to West Point, that he was going to serve 24 years, that he would be in combat, that he would be uh, in a special operations community, uh, that he would end up being an athletic director or you know, you know in the athletic department and then go on to do all this, would would, would senior Will Huff have believed him? No, I, I, I probably my goals were. Uh you know, just to be a high school football coach. And I guess some of the full circle of what I've done. And I did love the concept of service. I just didn't know any of the details. 
<laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, you know, devil is in the details, right? I mean, all of it, it it's all there. Again, uh, go to soldiers2sidelines.org. Uh, check out everything they have there. Uh, again, I- I'm in, man. You know, so I'll-, I'll sign up for your webinar. I'm there. Appreciate it, Mark. I'm, I'm, I'm going to lead a line of effort for coaching for you one day. As that Thank sound. you. Yes, you will. Uh, it's been amazing talking with you, Will. It's a, certainly, again, congratulations on an awesome yeah. career. Best of luck going forward uh, with, with Soldiers to Sidelines and, and certainly, you know, uh, continued success in everything you're doing. Thank you so much. Have a great night, Mark. Uh, will, Thank home, thanks you. for being part of the Hazard Ground. Pleasure. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.